Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. It's 401, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, September 19th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. The Sierra Club of Maine held their third Climate Action Conference Saturday in Lewiston. The keynote speaker was author George Lakey, who you may have heard. Uh, we interviewed him last week here on Maine Currents. George has been a peace activist and social justice activist, as well as an author since the 60s. And his most recent book is Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. John Greenman recorded the event. Glenn Brand of the Sierra Club of Maine was the MC. Uh, as the program notes, we are dedicating this conference in honor of David Moses Bridges, an extraordinary Passamaquoddy artist, craftsman, and environmental activist who passed away uh, last year. Uh, we're very grateful to have several members of David's family here. Um, his father, Earl Bridges, his sister, Jennifer Bridges, his brother, Daryl Bridges, and his nephew, Nicholas Sotoma. Uh, and I'd like to bring up Sierra Club volunteer leader, Becky Bardovix, to say a few more words about why we are honoring David today. Becky? Uh, thank you and welcome. Um, I, um, I wanted to mention Andy Burt um, stopped me before I got started to remind me that we are actually holding this conference on native sacred, uh, Wabanaki's sacred land. So if we could just take a moment to recognize that we are, um, we all in many places in the state are, are, are standing on native land, so to begin with. Um, David actually passed away um, way too soon uh, in the beginning of this year. Seems like it was many years ago, almost because there's been so many things happening, but I wanted to explain why we are dedicating this conference to him. Um, we lost David, a Passamaquoddy builder and of bridges and boats way too soon. I'm humbled by the sheer energy that David brought to any endeavor. It's emblematic of the spirit of wisdom and survival that our native peoples bring to knowing our place on earth. He had a deep understanding of the interconnectedness of all beings on this planet. We're lucky enough to, have it, to inhabit. We met David through his birch bark canoe building programs in many of Maine's schools, an area where he built bridges and boats at the same time. We worked alongside David in the environmental effort to protect Maine's coastline from development of harmful LNG ports. For 13 years, David was a key organizer for Save Passamaquoddy Bay Three Nations Alliance. In, uh, in Eastport, Robinson, Sepayak, um, which is also known as Pleasant Point, and St. Andrews um, in Canada. He stood up to the gargantuan industry set to have its way regardless of impact on local populations and Save Passamaquoddy Bay with David's help and many people who, who he led won. We are not, do not have LNG ports down there. Um, David brought a lively spirited energy to an, as, as an effective leader, an example once again bringing cultural gaps and bringing disparate groups, groups together to take on challenges and opponents that on first glance appeared insurmountable. 
with the increased sense of urgency that the recent floods in our country and across the globe, unprecedented wildfires, the sea level rise, impacts on fish, fowl, birds, and bees, on human suffering, we take heart from David's successes. We dedicate this conference in David's memory to ignite in us the strength of courage, empathy, humor, and persistence that he embodied. May his spirit embolden us to continue on our own climate actions because each new step we take as individuals and groups builds bridges. Together our steps can become a thundering crowd to raise all boats together to protect the beings of this earth and the planet we love. So we are happy to dedicate this to David's family. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Um, so with that, I will now, uh, I have the honor of introducing our keynote speaker, George Lakey. Uh, a distinguished writer, uh, activist, and sociologist, Mr. Lakey is the author of numerous books, including his most recent, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. Mr. Lakey is the founder of the Earthquaker Action Team, and he has led over 1,500 social change workshops throughout five continents. For his important work and action, he was awarded the prestigious Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Award in 2008. Uh, please join me in giving a warm main welcome to George Lakey. Thank you, thank you. That's so happy to be here. So happy to have a few days in Maine before getting here. Already I recognize some of you from earlier encounters. Thanks hugely to Joan Sachs and the others of you who made it possible for me on book tour to move around this amazingly beautiful state, which I don't know very well. So even at my late uh, advanced age, I still am getting to fall in love with states in these United States. I'm a good news bringer. I've been in 20 states now uh, in, on this book tour from Alaska to Arizona, New Hampshire, North Carolina, North Dakota, Iowa, just all over the place. And um, I keep finding good news and bringing good news. However, that also creates a collision between me sometimes and what people's experience is. Some of you, I don't know, some of you may have heard some bad news about what's going on in our country. How would, how, would, would you say, put up your hand if you heard any bad news. Yes, uh, I want to acknowledge, I, I also have heard some bad news about our country. And so it, it really puts me in a kind of warp because what I find is an energized country as I move around. And at the same time, it's, I would say, partly a response to the bad news, you know, uh, right? A kind of alarm clock, a kind of wake up call, let's get moving and so on. And what I find is, everywhere I go is people in motion. Very, very encouraging. So, and that's what I find here in Maine as well. So it really gives me a, a treat, uh, a, a special treat to be here among people who've been working on the climate issue for a very long time, and also more recently, people working on social justice, on racial justice, economic justice for a long time, and more recently, and I get to be here. So thank you, thank you for this. I, I want to address what 
what opportunities there are for growing and energized movements. Because that's what we've got. We've got growing and energized movements. And that means not necessarily same old, same old. For those of you who've been around for a while, that means new opportunities. So I want to speak to that question. What are the new opportunities that are now available that will help us to grow more effectively to be able to gain more power in making things right in our society. That's, that's what I'm particularly interested in. So I'll start out with this, uh, this reference to roles that we play in social change. This comes from an old friend of mine, Bill Moyer, who's now deceased, but was a strategist. He was on Dr. King's national staff, an amazing movement organizer. And he came up with this formulation of four roles by examining not only his own experience in many movements in this country, but also looking at the historical experience of successful social movements. What he found was that successful social movements tend to generate four roles that can be discerned uh, uh, for activity. And these are the four roles, the helper, direct service role, the advocate role, the organizer role, and the rebel role. And in all the successful movements that he studied and experienced, all four of those roles show up. Now, the opportunity that that gives us is increased awareness about our own selves and how we can unleash full power in our own individual selves. And at the same time, how we can sort ourselves out in growing movements to be able to unleash full power and full energy. Because what tends to happen in slower times of social change is that people, because we like solidarity, we like support, right, will often get together uh, even with people who differ from us in terms of what they really love to do. Bill's theory here is that each of us has a kind of home base that especially brings satisfaction. I mean, for some of us, like the helpers, the direct service people, getting those solar panels on the roofs, ah, you know, getting that plastic off the beach, ah, you know, that the directness, getting that farmer's market up and running, the directness of that role is the most deeply satisfying. And if you ask them, come on over here and be a rebel this week, go to jail with us, they say, well, maybe I will, but oh my God, so stressful. And, you know, uh, first I'll go to the beach and then maybe I'll catch up with you. You know, so, okay, so uh, one of the great things about growing movements is we can really affirm ourselves in each other and say, hey, if it's the beach that calls you, you know, or it's the, the permaculture that really does it for you, go for it. Go for it. The simplification of your life. That's the helper service role. Shows up in all successful movements. And what's more, you doing what is in your heart is more likely to attract other people who, who are sparked by that. Not necessarily intentional, you know, it's not necessarily somebody in, uh, say, guess what, I just, you know, I'm a helper, or whatever. They may not say that, they may say, I care about climate, or I care deeply about racial justice. Whatever it is they're saying, you might hear them in this deeper way and say, oh, great, come with me. On the other hand, you might say, oh, I know some people whose focus is advocacy. What is advocacy? Advocacy is going to elected officials, 
It can be going to court and doing a lawsuit. It can be any way that people are appealing to higher authorities in order to get them moving on the issue. I'm glad there's some elected officials and, and uh, candidates here uh, because this is a really important role. A lot of you have played this role. On the other hand, there are some people for whom it really floats their boat. That is their very favorite thing. For other people, it's like, oh, not another elected official. Oh, how can I stand this? Um, but I will do it because I am a dutiful Sierra Club member and I will go to all. Uh, where's, uh, where do you go? You go to Augusta, right? I will go to, in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, we go to Harrisburg. You know, I will do it one more time out of duty. All right, all right. But in a growing movement, we can have people who love to do this just knock themselves out. And the others of us who don't, uh, let me know how it works out. Okay, then the third role, the organizer role. The, one of the things I love about the organizer role uh, in, the, in the friends of mine who are especially loving this is that they don't care that much what they're organizing. The, po <laughs> the point is to get a lot of people in the room. Right? Right? Now, some of you here, I know some of you here have already been scanning the crowd. You've been noticing, <laughs> compared with last time, this Sierra Club got, oh, more people. Mm, very satisfying. Others of you did not do that. You didn't think that. You thought about the people you know or whatever you say, but you're not like, oh, the size of this crowd. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so that's the organizer. The organizer wants bigger and bigger and better and better in, and, and, and tighter organizing, right? Smoother and so on and so on. That's the organizer. Bless them. I'm not the best organizer in the world. I do it when I need to, but it's somewhat stressful. Okay, so George, you're part of a group now where there are some zestful organizers. Let them do it. Okay, uh, and then finally there's the rebel role. The rebel role is what it sounds like. It's the defiant one. It's the one who makes trouble. And the idea there, uh, who's a famous uh, rebel, would be Dr. King making trouble. How many of you have seen the movie Selma? It was out, what, about two, three years ago or something like that. Didn't you really see that rebel there with LBJ? There he was with the most, arguably the single most powerful person in the whole world. And there was Dr. King refusing to do what LBJ told him to do. That is rebel role. <laughs> and goes back to self in that case Selma he'd done it previously with JFK with John Kennedy when he was president went off to Selma, uh, to Birmingham to make such trouble that John Kennedy had to get on the phone and talk with members of the power elite of the economic elite and get them on board to create a civil rights act John Kennedy had told Dr. King no I, I want it, of course, I'm with you. I, I'm you know, deeply sympathetic with the oppressed plight of black people, but I will not back a civil rights bill. John Kennedy told King that to his face, right? So then King goes to Birmingham, dislocates an industrial city. In those days, it was a major city, U.S. Steel and so on. Uh, dislocates that city through the, the movement there, and then John Kennedy gets on the phone and calls around to the president of U.S. SEAL and others and says, come on, we gotta get, we, we gotta give something to these people. Let's give the Civil Rights Bill. That's what energized Kennedy. That's what got things moving. 
Okay, that's the rebel role. And that's uh, obviously a role that calls some people. Lo love it. There's a photograph in circulation of me, smile broad as can be, hands cuffed behind me, surrounded by eight police officers. Hey, I might possibly be a rebel. Okay, and there are other people for whom, George, I can't imagine my brief, you know, farthest dreams that I would want to go to jail with you. And I don't take that personally. <laughs> I want to go see my elected official. Well, go. Go with my blessing. Okay? And now, now, let's elevate this from our personal disposition and freeing each other to do what we're most called to do. But also we can move it up to the organizational level. I know there are more organizations represented here than Sierra Club. Okay, and there will be more in the future, in Maine and in our nation, and more and more because a growing movement spins off multiple groups. Now, one of the things that I get to do in the book tour is I'm often meeting with leadership, local leadership of activist uh, circles. And sometimes they will pull a lot of people into a room and say, George, help us to work together. And then I ask them this role question. It turns out all four roles are represented in the room. And, but they're saying, let's all get together. I could name some of the cities where this has happened with me on this tour. And so I say, well, hmm. So if you all got together, then you could argue for six to nine months on what you're going to do together. Anybody here ever be part of that argument? <laughs> all right. And you can end up choosing the lowest common denominator, the thing, you know, they'll get most people, well, okay, we'll do that beach thing, you know, or we'll do that advocacy thing or whatever. But uh, I said, how about instead understanding that it's this fertile ground now, this is growing time. How about each of you find each other around your particular role and then do that thing, do that thing. And then you've got four different things going in your community. And the people who are attracted to your particular thing that you're doing with your whole heart will come to you. And in this community, instead of having one kind of uh, you know, somewhat mediocre, but feeling, well, at least I'm righteous, I'm doing my thing for climate, whatever. Instead of having that kind of organization, you have four organizations that are alive because they're really doing their thing. Do you see what I mean? So this, that's the advantage of Bill's conceptualization here. It, it helps us to understand that sometimes a resorting of activists actually then spurts the growth of the movement because people are bringing the light to their task. The light in their eyes is apparent and that's what's attractive. To tell you the truth, there are a lot of people in the country who are not attracted to guilty duty. <laughs> I don't know why. Why isn't that the most popular thing in the world, guilty duty? I don't understand it. But there are a lot of people who are just not attracted to doing their guilty duty. So let's let go of guilty duty. Let's do what's really in our hearts to do. Find the people who want to do that particular thing, whatever that for thing is. I told, I told somebody this week uh, the story about how uh, the, the group that I'm part of is a rebel group. It's called uh, Earthquaker Action Team. Uh, Equate, we call it for short. And it's Quaker Action, you know, Earthquaker. 
trying to make earthquakes, right? So you can kind of tell, you know, the kind of thing we do. Our job is to make trouble, right? So the, uh, we won our first campaign against the seventh largest bank in the country. We, they were the number Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hard-fought campaign. They were the number one financer of mountaintop removal coal mining in Appalachia, which you may know. 500 mountains in Appalachia have been blown up uh, for coal. And then twice the cancer rates in those areas and birth defect rates shooting up and so on. So we stopped that bank from doing that. It took a lot of work. We were a rebel group. We were willing to put that work into it. Okay, so we win the campaign. Winners are attractive too, right? So, uh, so there's this woman I've known forever. Very, uh, I won't say her name because she's really well-known, internationally well-known, uh, happens to live in Philadelphia. She calls me up. She says, George, let's talk. So we have lunch. She says, I want to join your group. I want to join Equate. Equate is so cool. And I said, yes, it is very cool. I agree. And... I'm not sure that that's really the best spot for you. And she said, what do you mean? I, now I've sold my business and I'm like, you know, I'm free as a bird and I can really, I can bring money to you. I know a lot of wealthy people. I love to bring them in my living room and raise money from them and so on. So we'll bring you money and so on. Don't you want that? And I said, of course we want that. On the other hand, you strike me actually as an advocate what do you think? And I went over this four roles thing with her. And she thought, and she said, that's interesting. Your new campaign, you know, the, the CEO of the utility that you're going after now, I happen to know him. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been thinking I ought to talk with him. Ah, I said, there might be a clue there. Might be a clue there. So I talked her out of joining our team and into aligning with our goals so she sits down with this guy and she says you know this thing that this bunch of rabble rousers over here are demanding it's a good idea you ought to do that <laughs> and she can use her advocacy skills and her connections on behalf of our goals but keep herself with a, a plausible uh, degree of separation you know what I mean so she's not going to get arrested in the lobby like we are, you know, and, but she'll go see him two weeks later and say, you know, those folks who were arrested, you know, they actually have a good point and, uh, you know, you, you need to get on board and your business plan does need to shift and stuff like that. And of course, the CEO will listen to her in a different way from us. The CEO listens to us in terms of, oh, how can I get those people off my back so that I don't even have to worry about them? That's an important pressure. And then what she brings is a different kind of contribution. And getting people sorted out, that's one of the things that really liberates a movement to go the max. Okay, so that's one thing for you to think about. Uh, I wish we had time for discussion of each of these but because I'm so excited by the growth of movement potential in this country, having been at it since I was a kid, I uh, want to bring in another conceptualization for you. And we will get right to that. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU, and this is author, activist, and sociologist George Lakey, the keynote speaker at the Sierra Club of Maine's conference this weekend for climate action. Okay, so this is a conceptualization that I think will help you navigate whichever of the roles are your favorite, is your favorite, um, uh, navigate this country at this moment. This is a talk, this is a part of the talk I could not have given a year ago. 
This is about the polarization. Now, just let me ask you, though, are you experiencing in your communities, in your state, polarization, political polarization, people at, at odds who were not at odds before, or is it more extreme odds now than they were before? This has been going on for decades, but it's becoming more and more obvious. It's, it's headlined level now, obviously. Charlottesville, Virginia is only one recent example of the degree of polarization that we're experiencing. It follows the curve of economic inequality. That's what political scientists who've studied polarization have concluded, that the best predictor of how much polarization in any society at any moment is the degree of economic inequality. Well, you, you're all aware that there's been growth, tremendous growth in inequality in our country. What's the setup for the future? More inequality. That is, the entire economy is rigged to increase the number of billionaires and increase the amount of poverty on the other side. And so that, that inequality growing means more polarization. Okay, I want to acknowledge polarization is, includes ugliness. So that's a challenge. We have to try to make our peace with the reality that next year and the year after and year after will be worse than it's been up till now with regard to the ugliness of polarization. So please don't come around offering civil discourse workshops and think that you're going to handle this because it's not about teaching people civil discourse skills. It's about economic inequality. That's the motor. That's what's driving the polarization and will continue to drive it. Okay, so you could consider that bad news. <laughs> and there's definitely bad news about that. Definitely bad news about that. There's suffering about that. But look what it creates. It creates volatility in a social system. I'm a sociologist, I plead guilty to that. Okay, it creates volatility, it creates intensity. It puts the society in motion. And the metaphor that I like to use about what happens when things go into motion is that things become more open to change. And my favorite metaphor about that is a blacksmith who taking a piece of seemingly totally rigid material, right, putting it in the fire makes it malleable so that it can be shaped into a horseshoe. This blacksmith will not create a horseshoe out of that metal unless he gets it in motion first. Those electrons have to get working, right? And that's what makes it possible to build a horseshoe. Well, what makes it possible for us to make major change is being in the fire. And that's what polarization is doing for us as a service, even though it also brings with it a lot of negativity and a lot of difficulty. It also brings the possibility of change. And I could cite some examples. Polarized United States in the 1930s. That was when Nazism, anti-Semitism was growing. Ku Klux Klan was hugely uh, uh, active at that time. And on the other extreme of the polarization, the U.S. Communist Party, was, it was the glory period of the U.S. Communist Party, right? And uh, there, there were workers occupying entire factories 
uh, in Flint, Michigan, and Detroit, right? Uh, there, it was an amazing, amazing decade for strife and polarization. Some of it was very ugly. I, I, I don't like either end of that spectrum, either the dictatorship of the proletariat version or the Nazi version. I don't like either extreme. Both of those extremes were strongly present. And that was a big decade of breakthrough for our country. That was the decade when we got Social Security. That was the decade when we started passing serious laws for protection against child labor and so on and so on. We made huge strides in the 30s in that period of polarization. So even though you might say, looking around, you might say, oh, polarization, that means we get blocked. That means we can't make the main, the state that it could be. Wrong. Based on historical evidence, it's polarization that's going to make the battle malleable and make possible the main of your dreams. And we have to be open to that. The 30s is one example in our own country. The 60s and 70s is another example. That's when we got Medicare. That's when the environmental movement took off. Over and over and over, we see in the 60s and 70s tremendous strides forward at the same time as the, not the American Nazi movement grew again, the Ku Klux Klan grew again, National Rifle Association, membership exploded, you know, there's just all this right-wing stuff that was really growing, and at the same time, the National Rifle Association actually was shifting from uh, hunter, uh, like, uh, you know, a conservancy-oriented organization to, uh, you know, let's have lots of guns or decision. Um, and, and on the left also, there was extremity, uh, the Black Panthers, there was, there was some stuff that, that was going on that looking back, uh, we can see was, was really problematic. Nevertheless, big period of change for us that was positive. Um, I, as some of you know, I've been uh, on this book tour about this book, Viking Economics, and the good news from studying uh, Norway and Sweden, as I did for this book, is that they made not just changes, positive changes during their period of polarization, greatest polarization in their histories, the 1920s and 30s, but they actually made a breakthrough not just the changes, like we made justice changes, they made a breakthrough such that they got the political space to be able to create the Nordic economic model, which is far and away the most successful model any society has created for justice, for democracy. They have way more democracy over there than we have. Individual freedom, they have more individual freedom. Norwegians are freer than Americans as individuals. They experience and enjoy more personal freedom than we have, and more equality. They have way more equality than we have. They're top of the charts in all kinds of measures of economic well-being and so on. Um, the, the typical, I, as part of the research for the book, I kept reading all these various indices of economic well-being, and uh, including, including entrepreneurs. Norway has more startups than the United States does, for example. So in multiple ways, when you look at these various gradations of countries according to measures of economic well-being, you'll find in the top tier, the Nordic countries playing tag with each other. 
Like this year it's Norway that's the happiest country, but last year it was Denmark that was the happiest country. You know, they play tag with each other. Um, but then also you look down the list and along around 10 or 12 or 13, you usually find the UK. And then you keep looking down the list to 30, 35, you find the United States. And this is not new. This has been going on for a while because they created an alternative economic model that enables them, for one thing, to race ahead on climate issues. Race ahead. There's an index of environmental performance. Again, the Nordics are at the top tier, the Brits kind of, you know, coming along, and then the U.S. Uh, is practically off the charts on the bottom. So. There we go. The evidence is very, very clear that that is the model that works, which is why I wrote the book and why I'm running around the country encouraging people to learn from them. Well, but the important thing about how they did this was that uh, one of the many things that we can learn from them is that they were supported to make a breakthrough, not just advances, but a breakthrough by the fact that they had a vision of what they wanted. Now, this may come, for, for some of the rebels in, your, in this crowd, it may be disappointing, my next statement. We cannot protest our way into a just society. It's not enough to say no to what we don't want. Including pollution. It's not enough to say no to pollution. In, including carbon. It's not enough to say no to carbon. Based on historical evidence, what really works to make major change is to say yes to an alternative. If not pollution, then what? Right? If not fossil fuels, then what? And it's saying yes to the alternative that enables societies to move decisively forward. So it's certainly true we have to stop a bunch of stuff. Like I'm delighted that we stopped a bunch of uh, blowing up of mountains. On the other hand, now we're saying yes in our current campaign to what we want instead. And that vision is really important. And there's good news on vision, but I'll come back to that later. How to create the power that we need. Okay, uh, so now this particularly addresses the, the rebel role because even though a good campaign takes a lot of organizing and it takes a lot of support. You know, even during, in Dr. King's day in the civil rights movement, there were a lot of chicken dinners getting cooked <laughs> and a lot of people coming out of prison who needed healing and all of that, right? So you need the helpers actually and you need the organizers to get the large numbers and you need the advocates who are willing to go into the, into the fire with LBJ and the elected officials. So you need all those four roles. But it's the, the campaign especially highlights the, the skill set of the of the of what I call the drama queens. I claim myself as a drama queen. The rebels, the people who love to create drama. Now, why is that important? That's important in a situation, especially like ours, when there are so many people in despair who are feeling on their own as individuals. I want to be with my screen. Don't bother me. <laughs> but who get attracted by drama? You all know people like that, right? who can be diverted from their screen when there's something dramatic going on. 
It's drama that catches their attention. Okay, and drama is the specialty of the rebels. It's especially important for those who are despairing. You know, in 1955, I'm old enough to actually remember this, uh, the condition of most black people in our country was a very resigned and despairing disposition. Slavery is still going on. Mass incarceration is still going on. It's still going on. It's pretty hopeless, pretty, pretty hopeless situation for black people in this country. 1955, right? Rosa Parks, Montgomery, Alabama, bus boycott. Oh, huh, that's interesting. Maybe something more can happen. So Bayard Rustin, chief uh, strategist for Dr. King, huge influence on me, says, let's get young people together, especially from historically black colleges, to come to Washington and hear Dr. King speak. So they do a march for integration in 1957 and Dr. King speaks and these young people who on each campus it's like you know a few of us cronies who talk but most students ah they're careerists they couldn't care less about the freedom of our people da, da, da. hey look we're here with thousands of other people oh my gosh whoa drama we're marching down the streets and the, the, the police are obviously very apprehensive about all these black people together at once. When you put that many black people together at once, there's going to be something awful going on, right? According to in, in the eyes of, the, of white police officers in the 50s. And so, drama, they go back to their campuses and say, guess what, I'll bet there's something we could do. Well, guess what, four students start a sit-in in February 1st, 19th. 60, right? Four students. Think of that. Four students in North Carolina go down and do a sit-in. Next thing you know, sweeping the South, sit-ins. Drama, drama, drama everywhere. People waking up, people saying, oh, I've been depressed for years. I'm tired of being tired. Time to move. Time to act. Big lesson here. Do not take the apathy of people that you know of. All of us know some apathetic people, yes? People who uh, don't seem to care, okay. Do not take that too seriously. Just understand that as a temporary phenomenon. What it means is there's not been enough drama in their life. <laughs> it only means that there's not enough drama in their life. Think of the LGBT movement. Families coming along, you know, making homophobic assumptions, maybe good evangelicals or whatever, and gay people are going to hell, whatever. Next thing you know, its beloved brother comes out of the closet at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Is that drama or what? Right? Change, 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 change. Huge change in the LGBT situation in the last 30, 40 years. Huge change. Drama. Okay, so that's, about, that's what campaigns are about. They're about a proactive movement. And obviously, you can develop campaigns proactively if you have a vision because you know what it is you want and therefore what you'll fight for. Also, uh, what happens if you have a campaign on an issue like the, the environmental movement's glorious campaign against uh, nuclear power plants, right? In the 70s, 60s and 70s, okay, there's a campaign at this plant, campaign at that plant, campaign at another plant. Add those campaigns together, you get a movement. 
Very different. Very different outcome. Because campaigns can lose and win. Think of, uh, think of the one in, uh, where was it, New Hampshire. Uh, what was the name of that? The, yeah, 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 Seabrook, Seabrook. Okay, so that was one of the best publicized campaigns, right? Mass occupation, many, many people in, what, National Guard armories and stuff like that, in prison, some, probably some of you. And, uh, and it failed to stop the reactor, right? Okay, uh, the other best publicist, well, partly. Yeah, Suki was involved in that. Okay, but I'm making a bigger point. Making a bigger point. Okay, sorry, but, uh, and, and the, the California one, Diablo Canyon, right? Uh, a, a plant got built, even, you know, they print it, okay. So, uh, so you can have campaigns that are only half wins or even some of them lost. And nevertheless, there were other campaigns that are winning. So that's the difference about have, having multiple campaigns around an issue, which is called a movement, because the movement won, even though there were campaigns that were lost. So this is something that where we agree with military generals, that you can lose battles and still win the war, right? You know, a military general does not expect to win all the battles, but they do go for winning the war because of the accumulative change of forces that happens in the course of the struggle. And that's exactly what environmentalists pulled off. So you stopped, you stopped the 1% from its goal of gaining 1,000 nuclear reactors in the United States of America. How about that? That's what the federal government lined up with. Yes, how about that? How about that? State governments all uh, pretty much all agreed. The utilities, of course, love the idea. The banks love the idea of loaning all that. The big construction companies love the idea. Westinghouse, General Electric. I mean, we are talking about a power conglomeration behind the goal of a thousand nuclear power plants. That is amazing. Obviously, a grassroots movement cannot stop that. Ha! <laughs> you did it. Just breaking in here to let you know what you're listening to. This is Main Currents on WERU. George Lakey is an activist, sociologist, and the author of several books, including Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right, and How We Can Too. He spoke in Lewiston on Saturday. One of the things I don't understand sometimes as I move around among environmentalists is why aren't environmentalists constantly talking about that? <laughs> why aren't we claiming that victory over and over and over? and how that happened. Because that was, the, I think, the single most brilliant uh, 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 move among American environmentalists ever. And to me, not to talk about that would be like black people not, you know, burying the history of Montgomery or never talking about Birmingham or Selma. Why? Why aren't we talking about that all the time? Why aren't our children all cognizant of that struggle because it was in power terms. Now I'm talking in power terms. Of course, there are other ways that other struggles have also been marvelous. But in power terms, in terms of a grassroots movement against unity at the top. Wow. Wow. Well, we can do that again. We did it before. We can do it again. Now, when you get the proactive movement that's based on multiple campaigns, then you get the chance 
to develop a movement of movements because one movement tends to encourage another set of campaigns around other issues, right? This happened in the 60s and 70s. And then there are multiple movements. And if you can develop a common platform, you can have a movement of movements. And if you can have a movement of movements, then, then my friends, I will not hear you complaining about your governor. <laughs> I will not hear that. I will come back to Maine. I'll see a bunch of you. And we'll have an entire conversation without your governor being named once. Because when you get a movement of movements, you are in charge. That's when you have actual democracy, is when you have a movement of movements. Now that means, yes, that's right. And you so totally deserve that. You so totally deserve that. Um, what it means is functioning democracy, which is what we do not have in this country. And let us please give up that. I mean, some of us are kind of snobbish about climate deniers. Well, how about, <laughs> Dick, you know, how about oligarchy deniers? Yeah. How about that? I run into a lot of oligarchy denying. That's what BBC called the study, the Princeton study. I, I talk about that in the book. The Princeton University did a study of uh, almost 2,000 decisions that were made on the federal level over a two-decade two period. And every single one of those decisions, they asked themselves, okay, these were major policy decisions. Where did the economic elite stand on that decision, and where did the majority of Americans stand on that decision? And what they found was that every time, there was almost every time there was a disagreement between the majority of Americans and the economic elite, it was the economic elite that got its way, and the majority lost. So the reluctant conclusion of these scholars was, if democracy means majority rule, that is not what we have in the United States. Now, my friends, that was true before Citizens United. So if you're at all tempted to say, well, Citizens United, you know, let's do a big campaign about... That was true, uh, the, the, the two decades that they studied was before, uh, before Citizens United. Which, of course, even locks up the game even more, right? Citizens United does. So what we're talking about is non-democracy in our country. As soon as we give up oligarchy denial, which is what the Norwegians and Swedes were willing to give up, they finally saw through their pretend democracy. They said, oh my gosh. We have been going along saying to ourselves, we have a parliament, isn't that great? We have free elections, isn't that great? And yet, it was the economic elite in Norway and Sweden got its, got its way, decade after decade after decade, the majority will was ignored. So the Norwegian Swedes said, forget about this parliamentary politics thing. It's obviously a scam. What we have to do is shift the power by creating people's movements through campaigns. They did this route, they traveled this route. Do campaigns, get the movements to agree on a common platform, and then push the economic elite out of the way so that we can have a real democracy. Okay, so the choice point though, once you get a movement of movements, which is also called a coalition, the choice point is, do you allow yourself to be co-opted? I'm gonna be very controversial, I just wanna warn you. 
do you allow yourself to be co-opted by the existing political arrangement, or do you retain your independence so that you can push the economic elite out of the way and create a real democracy? Now, the Democratic Party's uh, role in um, American politics has been to be the party of co-optation. The Republican Party's role has been mostly repression. You know, put them down, put them down. But the Democrats' role has been to co-opt the civil rights movement, which they did not succeed in doing for a long time. And the, the, the civil rights movement, uh, one reason why it got so far was because it retained its independence for an amazing long time before it got co-opted, but then it did. Women's movement has largely been co-opted. Environmental movement, it could be argued, has been largely co-opted by the Democratic Party. It's the Democratic Party's job to co-opt all the, you know, the feisty, frisky folks uh, who are really thinking for themselves and make sure that you are absorbed into the party and its platform and its uh, elected officials. And it's not that they're nasty or anything, wonderful people, some of my best friends are Democrats. <laughs> I was brought up a Democrat. Uh, it's just that it's what they do best, which is co-opt co groups. So uh, I've been having a lot of fun uh, at both traveling the country and also experimenting in the Philadelphia area with creating power centers that, re that remain independent. So that even when elected officials come to us, uh, or even when elected officials expect us to lobby them, we just don't. We just say, we are the people. We understand this issue, and we are developing more and more and more power around this issue. And when we do that experiment, what happens? The elected officials come to us and say, how can I help? They've got to do that, at least if they're Democrats, they've got to do that, most of them, because their job is to co-opt us. Okay, so then what we get to do is be really self-respecting, right? And we can do deals that are really self-respecting, understanding that we are the power center. Not that we are supplicants, like medieval serfs, right, going to the lord of the manor and saying, please protect our beaches, or please give our grandchildren a chance for an education, or something like that. Now, I know there are older people in the room who learned at some point, probably middle school, junior high, that the, our, the American setup is supposed to be, we are the, the center of sovereignty, and then we have public servants who are supposed to do our will. Am I right? How many of you have heard that ever? It's a grand concept. I fell in love with that concept. That's one reason why I'm such a strong, small D Democrat, because I actually fell in love with that concept. I've done work in, in Russia with groups that were trying to create democracy in Russia. Very, very tough. Uh, and I'm, I go through the, the travail of going to Russia and working with groups like that because I so deeply believe in small-d democracy. It's a wonderful dream. Well, so we need to retake that sense of self-empowerment. We are the center. We are the sovereignty. And the elected official's job is to do our will. Okay. Now, if they are instead more interested in getting us on board the Democratic Party machine, which is accountable to Wall Street, really, 
look at the money, follow the money, and follow the policies that are actually made. Again, we have to give up oligarchy denial here. It's painful. But if you look at the track record, I mean, especially those of you who've been working on climate, right? Look at presidential election after presidential election with Democrats not wanting to talk about climate at all, right? I mean, this is, this is the great ignored movement, right? But talk with labor union people. Ask them, well, you know, did the Democrats do a good job for you? <laughs> What's going on with the labor movement in the last three years? What went on during the Clinton administration? What went on during the Obama? What went on with regard to labor? Did you see the federal government really in there, as, as was the case during the FDR years when the labor was really pushing very hard and they started making uh, uh, compensatory um, uh, changes to make it easier to organize and so on and so on. But if you have any illusions about the environmental movement in the U.S. getting victory through the Democratic Party, talk to the labor movement, which put more money, right? Decades and decades of large amounts of membership dues they put into the Democratic Party, into candidacies, and troops, disciplined troops. Now, I know environmentalists can also put people on the streets, but my guess is, and I'm keen to do research on this, if you compare the labor movement's amount of money over the years and troops that they committed to Democratic candidates with the environmental, I think they had way more resources put into Democrats than the environmentalists have done. And then just ask labor leaders, what has the Democratic Party done for you lately? Ask them. So if you have illusions of the way for environmentalists to get stuff done, well, let's learn from our sisters and brothers. So, okay, so movement of movements puts you in a position to be a mass coalition, then you can really do, uh, get things done, and there's more about that in the book. I don't have time to uh, do more on that. but. As also, I'll bet I've stirred up enough controversy so that I should probably quit before you mob me. There are a bunch of rebels here. I need guidance, actually, from, uh, from you about whether we're supposed to have question time and rebuttal time or not. She's saying time is time is fleeting. Okay, so I wind up just quickly. Do happen to have more copies? The bookstore is over here, so I'm happy to sign copies of that. And I'm going to be here all day. So, and I would love those of you who disagree with any. I hope I've been provocative enough so that there's a bunch of things you disagree with. So please grab me in the halls, whatever. Say, George, you're full. And I love that uh, because that's rebel talk. And then, uh, and then we'll have a grand. A grand set of dialogues. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Again, that was George Lakey, author of several books, including Viking Economics, How Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too, speaking at the Sierra Club of Maine's Climate Action Conference on Saturday. Our thanks to John Greenman for recording his talk. If you'd like to hear more from George Lakey, 
check out our interview with him that aired last week at this time on Main Currents. It's now available at the WERU Public Affairs Archives at WERU.org. That's where you can go to find the archives of our locally produced news and public affairs programs and short features. Again, WERU.org and click on the Public Affairs Archives tab. You've been listening to Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Join us here every Tuesday at 4 o'clock on Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. You can contact us at news at WERU.org with story ideas and suggestions. And keep it tuned here because we've got Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy and a World of Music. Support for WERU comes from our listeners.